today's scripture reading is from Numbers 27, 16 to 17, and 1 Peter chapter 5, 1 through 11. Uh, the Old Testament reading first. Let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, point a man over the congregation, who shall go out before them and come in before them, who shall lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be uh, as sheep that have no shepherd. Uh, now the New Testament reading. So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another, for God opposes the proud by give grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that you, at the proper time, he may exalt you, casting out all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around you, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kind of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Luke, for added effect. Uh, today ends our series in First Peter. And as we are getting ready to enter into the season of Advent, the month before Christmas, the preparation of the awaiting of the coming of Christ, First uh, Peter, I think, is a great letter to meditate on. Uh, one of the reasons why it's so helpful as we're entering into Advent is because Advent is a time where we can reflect on our great need for Christ now. Lead us, your sheep. Guide us through the wilderness. Lord, let us hear your Son's voice, the Great Shepherd, and let the Holy Spirit now speak to your people. Lord, in need of restoration, in need of hope, in need of encouragement, Lord, uh, we long for Christ to come. We long for our faith to be made sight. And so, Lord, would you strengthen us through your word preached today? In Jesus' name, amen. There is a YouTube video out there that you can search for um, not right now, after the sermon, all right? All right. Although I know that some of you are on your phones. Um, <laughs> it's okay. Uh, and, and let me just give you the title here. It's called The Good Shepherd and His Sheep. Uh, it, what you'll see in this video is you'll see this uh, European shepherd in, in the countryside, and he's surrounded by this sort of mountain of fog. All right? uh, you can't really see anything ahead of him. His flock are scattered throughout the countryside, and there's no way to see where they are. Uh, potentially lost due to the visibility. And the shepherd, uh, rather than being concerned or scared or worried, uh, looks at the camera and just smiles and then looks to the fog and begins calling his sheep over and over again. 
And uh, suddenly, one by one, the sheep start breaking through the fog, uh, delighted in hearing the call of their shepherd, running joyfully to him because they know his voice. And so he keeps on calling, and, and he waits for all of the sheep to arrive, uh, some coming later than others, uh, some more distantly away. And it's only when all of them have come does he take his backpack off, and he starts feeding all of them. The sheep that understand what the shepherd is doing, they, they, they huddle around the food, and they are fed, protected, and cared for. But, but some arrive and wind up wandering off again, not realizing what the shepherd has done to bring them safety. Uh, for us, this analogy might not hit home for us because a few of us grew up around sheep. I don't think there's many farmers here in Columbia, Maryland, um, and maybe we don't understand the complexity of this analogy of a shepherd. You see, but for Peter's audience, this analogy would have been extremely poignant for them in thinking through what it means to endure suffering and how we do that by following our great shepherd. See, Peter ends this letter here in chapter 5 much like he started his letter, reminding the church of their posture to suffering, reminding them to look to Christ. But he does so in a way that calls for them to see themselves in a different light. You see, the church is more than just sort of an institution or a movement or a force. Rather, he uses these two guiding analogies that we'll cover here in our time today in these 11 verses. Uh, number one, that Christ is the great shepherd. And number two, that the church is the humble flock. Uh, Christ is the great shepherd and the church is the humble flock. And so let, let's start with this first idea that, that Christ is the great shepherd. Uh, you see, chapter 5 begins tying together everything that came before it, especially chapters 2 through 4, how the, the, the idea of how do we live practically when we're suffering, when we're being persecuted? How is this supposed to be lived out in various aspects and ways? And how do we await the fiery trial that will come our way? You see, these churches that are scattered all across Asia Minor, right, when the fog of spiritual warfare is present, how will they keep it together? What will unite them in moments of guaranteed suffering and great trial? And so Peter's answer is to the leaders of the church. Uh, this word called presbyteroi, uh, translated as elders in your Bible, where we get the term Presbyterian. And these uh, presbyters, these elders, were set up by Peter and Paul in the book of Acts. Now, whenever they planted churches in the book of Acts, uh, those that were called to lead the church, well, he, he, they designated elders uh, who were called to lead and who were called to teach. Uh, this is where we get, by the way, our designation in our denomination, that there are those who are called to lead, we call them ruling elders, and those who are uniquely called by Christ to teach, those are called teaching elders. Uh, so same in authority, right? Uh, parity amongst leadership, but different functions. It was a designation from the apostles to the churches they founded that the leadership would go from the apostles to the elders, this sort of chain of command from Christ to the apostles to the elders of the church. And Peter reminds the churches that as a fellow elder himself, someone who witnessed the trials and sufferings that Christ went through, uh, that these elders' authority is not imagined, this, these uh, elders that the authority has been given is not ultimate, rather it's given by God with a promise that God's glory will be revealed. They are to be shepherds for the flock, modeling what Christ did as the great shepherd. Now, we are reminded in Scripture 
of the qualifications of an elder and their office. As outlined in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, if we could just put up 1 Timothy 3 here, all right, we will see some of the, the qualities that these elders are supposed to have. Uh, they must be above approach, uh, a one-woman man, uh, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, a teach, uh, be able to teach, not a drunkard. We also see the same things highlighted again in Titus 1, all right? Uh, that his children are to be believers, he is not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. In other words, when we look at all of these characteristics, notice here what we see. We see more about the quality and the character of the elder rather than his ability or his talents. Now, as with all leadership, character matters. You know, this thought of, oh, you know, we're not putting someone up there who's a saint. We're, we're putting up someone there to do a job. When we think of leadership position, that is an abject lie to Scripture. All right? We cannot justify uh, poor character in the name of competency, but especially when we think of Christ's church. We're reminded that the leadership of the church is not designed in a way that we think leadership should be organized or brought together. You see, it's not simply to put people there who are most gifted in the areas of administration, leadership, academic prowess, or charisma. It's about those whom God has called to be leaders of Christ's church. It's ultimately in the calling of God himself. Consider Jesus' disciples, you know, the apostles whom he made disciples, whom this lineage of church leadership would begin. Consider the disciples' pedigree, and you will realize that church leadership and those who are often called to it are often the very individuals that would appear to be the worst possible kind of candidates to be in those positions. It would seem Jesus is a horrible HR person in human resources. Why? Uh, it's not because the apostles are incompetent. Uh, to the contrary, we discover that God, when God places his spirit on them, they become extremely effective. No, rather, uh, God places his disciples uh, in this role, because God often uses the very weak things of the world to confound the wisdom of our day and age. Elders are called to the ministry because God longs for the church to be shepherded under the great shepherd, not under the great personality. And this is why Peter exhorts the elders to shepherd the flock of God. Notice, it's the flock of God. It's the Lord's flock. It's not the elders' ownership. The flock aren't their tools for further advancement or success or to be used to stroke their ego. The sheep that God has entrusted to their care is a responsibility and a stewardship given by the great shepherd, a high honor that calls for sober-mindedness to the task and great dedication to the cause. Um, what kind of dedication does a shepherd need? You know, one interview I saw with a shepherd details his daily routine. A shepherd goes to bed at 10 p.m., wakes up then at 2 a.m. to feed uh, the, the small uh, lambs and sheep who are unable to get enough milk. They sleep in the barn then until 6 a.m., where afterwards he tends to the flock all day, protecting them from predators, caring and nursing and feeding them all the way up until 10 p.m. During the winter time when they are lambing, they must tend to the flock around the clock. Uh, they must, uh, in, in many ways, sleep with them at all times. Shepherds are pressed with predators from all sides, from uh, domesticated dogs to flying animals to wolves. Everywhere, sheep are at risk and are at danger. So in this analogy that Peter is giving, the elder who are called to shepherd the sheep isn't just a positional title. 
given to people in the church to make decisions like a board of directors or you know, to, to show how successful the leadership of the church is. No, elders are called to give their lives to a congregation very much like a shepherd would for the sheep. You see, only in this do the exhortation to the elders to lead make sense. This reward of an unfading crown of glory in these verses be given its rightful place to elders. Because, why? Because they are called to exercise oversight, to give their lives, wisdom reflective of their guiding leadership. They are, they are called to do so without compulsion, as Scripture says. Meaning that elders do this task willingly of giving up their lives. Rather than being pressured to or voluntold because no one else was available. They are told to serve not for their own gain or for their own edification, as though the role of elder was merely for the sake of themselves. Rather, they do it eagerly for the sake of others. They are not to use their leadership to domineer over others, to create false barriers of authority above their congregation, to head for abuse. Rather, they are to be examples of Christ, who gave up his life for us on the cross. Now, as I say these very words about church leadership, um, I know that the all-too-real reality for many of us hits us. Uh, we often, the first thing that comes to our mind is of pastoral or elder neglect or abuse or harm given to those whom have served underneath poor leadership. Uh, the news every year comes across uh, my email inbox of some pastor or church leader that has fallen into some deeply exposed sin that was covered up by the leadership of the church. I hear stories of those who were taken advantage of, robbed of their agency or their finances, and the church became a horror to the saints rather than a hospital for sinners. Sadly, the ways in which many of these churches have exploited their members, you know, sort of elevating the shepherds of a flock to a such a high degree that many congregation members see themselves as mere dumb sheep, a degraded status that puts a dangerous amount of disparity between the shepherd and the flock itself. The condemnation against the church of today is that elders long to protect the institution rather than the innocent, to increase attendance rather than the attributes of love, to harshly rebuke rather than humbly repent. And the church, because of it, has lost so much of its witness because it views elders as a position of unrestrained power first for sacrificial Christ-likeness. Now, as I say this, a thought might be coming to your mind. You may be asking yourself the question, you know, why would God set up the leadership of the church this way? We may ask ourselves, why does God use fallen people to call them into these roles of leadership? Maybe we should just abandon the whole program together. I mean, what will God do about all of this? Why does God organize the church in this way? What will God do about the abuse? Well, well let's answer this question first. Uh, first of all, let's remind ourselves that there is no abusive leader, elder, or church person that gets away with harming Christ's flock. You see, elders truly are on borrowed time because verse 4 reminds us of an important reality the chief shepherd will appear back to us. The one who has not lost any of his sheep. The one who knows his flock by name. The one whom he has laid down his life for them. And this great shepherd points out exactly what will happen 
to those who abuse their title of elder. In Ezekiel chapter 34, verses 7 to 10. Uh, let's put that up on the screen. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely because my sheep have become a prey and my sheep have become food for all the wild beasts since there was no shepherd. Because my shepherds have not searched for my sheep, because the shepherds have fed themselves and have not fed my sheep, therefore you shepherds hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against the shepherds. And I will require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths that they may not be food for them. The reality of Ezekiel 34 will come alive for those elders who choose to lead their flock in abusive, harmful, and hurtful ways. Justice will come for those who remained unloving, self-seeking, and passive for those under What will God do about it? But maybe that still doesn't answer the question of why does God fashion the leader of the ship of the church in this way? If it could be prone to abuse or neglect, if it could be prone to shepherds not shepherding, why would God do it this way? One of the answers lies in the end of verse 3, that they are to be examples to the flock of the great shepherd of Christ. Here's the stunning reality of the gospel. God uses imperfect people of imperfect pedigree with imperfect track records to point to a perfect shepherd. That those who are called to this high honor of eldership, that in the way that they are following, his Christ, following Christ and living out Christ's humility, in the ways that they, they demonstrate to some measure Christ's kindness, his mercy, his grace, his love, his sacrificial nature, his hospitality, his compassion, his strength, and protection over the innocent and the weak. These elders show the transformative power of the gospel to a church that is in need of a shepherd to follow in Christ's footsteps. When we think about good elders living this out, I can't help but to sing the praises to give glory to God for our ruling elders here at City of Hope. You know, Jason, uh, who's, who's out on vacation, and Scott, who have been serving you diligently this past year, they do so with great grace and compassion. Ronnie, um, our other ruling elder who is on sabbatical, you know, he's single-handedly one of the reasons why we still have a church in the way that we do. And they all have to put up with this over-demanding teaching elder who demands too much of them. That's me. I'm sorry. That was a bad joke. All right. They are gracious and kind. And anyone who's spent any quality time with Jason, Scott, or Ronnie will know of their shepherding heart for you. They have incredibly deep and supportive and understanding families, and especially their children. Miriam, Christine, Danielle, Simon, Dexter, Ann, Philip, Calvin. Uh, thank you for letting us borrow your fathers, for the way that they serve the church. But they wouldn't have me up here singing their praises. It makes them feel incredibly uncomfortable. I can see Scott's face now, and I especially can see it now with, with them. Uh, no, they would want you, through their imperfect leading, uh, through their mistakes, they would want you to just see a glimmer of Jesus, the great shepherd. They would want you to follow his voice, his leading, his compassion, by the grace of God working through them. You see, in this, the gospel is made so much more greater in the way that Christ structures his church. 
Because it tells us the story of church leadership not being one of performance, but of grace. Elders being ordinary flock members make us glorify God all the more because we praise God and not the man for the work that is being done. Elders in many ways are the same as those that they serve. They are just simply trying to point people to Christ. And in that sense, we can then see exactly why God would set up elders of the church in this way because it brings the most glory to himself. In the successes and the failures of the church, Christ is looked to as the perfect shepherd. And that must mean for us here, our second point here today, that the church is the humble flock. Verse 5 talks about the the younger being subject to the elders. Uh, That word for younger is not a designation of age. It's actually a designation of position. All right, in church leadership. So the younger refers to the congregation. The younger refers to the flock themselves. Now, uh, let me pause here for a brief discourse on something that we may have overemphasized when we think of the analogy as the church as the flock or as the church as sheep. Because often I have heard, and I'm sure that you have too if you've grown up in any church that believes in the inherent sinfulness of man, that, you know, sheep are the most unintelligent shepherd they will be the first to tell you about the sheep's ability, prowess, and their worth in the shepherd's eyes. They will tell you about the personalities and qualities of the sheep that they love, their temperaments, their likes and dislikes. They will tell you the lessons of life that are taught from their flock. Consider this, right? If sheep are merely just dumb, ignorant creatures, you know, empty vessels for resources, why would anyone give their life to them? Why do the shepherds love them in the way that they do? See, I think it's time we re-examine the sheep analogy with a bit more dignity towards the sheep themselves. And this is vitally important when we talk about life as a church together. We, should, we shouldn't start the sheep analogy with the doctrine of sin. We should start it with the doctrine of creation. Let me ask you something. If sheep are nothing but vacuous, ignorant pieces of flesh, why would God lay down his life for them? Why would God send his one and only son to redeem them? The only way this makes sense is if they were valuable in his sight. If the flock of Christ was loved. If the flock of Christ had meaning and value. And so we lose the value of Scripture when we think of the analogy of sheep purely as dumb creatures. Rather, we need to think of ourselves as more than just that. Psalm 8, that we were created a little lower than the angels, crowned with glory and honor. As our confessional document states, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 10, God created us in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness after his own image. We're not just dumb idiots. We're made in his image. And the flock of Christ is not to be viewed any lesser than the way God sees them. No, rather, if we're going to use the D word to describe the flock, uh, I'm going to offer a different D word. All right? The sheep aren't dumb. Rather, uh, we're dependent. We're dependent on the shepherd. Dependent on the leadership that Christ has given to the church to survive the fiery trials. And this requires tremendous humility from the church in tons of ways that Peter spells out in verses 5 through 10 of our passage today. There are five exhortations of humility in this passage. I'll go through them very quickly. Number one, At the end of verse 5, they must be humble towards one another in the body of Christ. 
the Reformed Prince of Writers, as he is dubbed, J.C. Ryle, once wrote this in his commentary in Luke 14. Humility may be well called the queen of the Christian graces. To know our own sinfulness and weakness and to feel our need of Christ, this is the very beginning of saving religion. You see, humility is the opposite of resentment towards one another, of jealousy, of bitterness. Humility is fulfilling the great commandment to love your neighbor as yourself. And some of us, we may need to love ourselves better so that we may be able to love our neighbors better. Because when you start doing this, you start aligning yourself to who you are in Christ rather than living in opposition to the way that you were created. As it says here, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So you who have received the grace of Christ, you who have received his love and mercy, you who are made into this new creation, love one another in humility. J.C. Ryle continues, Ignorance, nothing but sheer ignorance, ignorance of self, of God, and of Christ, is the real secret of pride. From that miserable self-ignorance may we daily pray to be delivered. He is the wise man who knows himself, and he who knows himself will find nothing within to make him proud. Second, we're not only called to be humble towards one another, we must be humble towards underneath, being God, underneath God's mighty hand. In other words, to translate Peter's metaphor, to submit ourselves under God's power and God's timing. Christians who do this will realize that they will be exalted on the day of glory. Right? So by resting in God's power, we prevent ourselves from trying to take power into our own hands and in our own timing. And that requires much humility. We rest on the Lord's hand to do the work through us. And we also rest on the Lord's timing to make it happen. Third, we must be humble towards our afflictions. Our afflictions. Peter points us to the fact that all of us in the flock of God will suffer some form of anxiety in our lives. Notice here when he says, cast your anxieties on him. Notice Peter doesn't call our anxiety sin or experience of worry or fear, a problem to be dealt with, or you know, a platitude to be explained away. Rather, Peter acknowledges the reality that all of us will feel anxious. And he calls for us to direct our anxieties on the one who truly cares for us better than anyone else can in this life. Now, Peter is not saying that we shouldn't cast our anxieties on friends, other people in the church, family, you know, a good counselor. These are all things that are right and good. But Peter is saying, go to God. Go to God himself. He waits for you to bring all that you are carrying, all that you are holding. And he wants you to put it on him. His shoulders are big enough. His compassion is deep enough. His comfort, gracious enough. You know, especially for our covenant children here today, uh, this is for you. Uh, Whenever you are facing deep anxiety and fear about what's coming next, you know, think of the most caring person you know in this life and then multiply that by a thousand and then a million. That's just a fraction of the way that God cares for you. Cast your burdens and anxieties on him children and adults, because the Lord does care for you. He does. Fourth, we must be humble towards our enemy, the devil. Uh, Scripture reminds us, like every good football coach before the big game, 
Uh, don't underestimate the opponent that you know you can beat. When you do, you leave the door open for the evil one to destroy you. He's the one ready to pounce on the flock and devour those who think they can flirt with sin and not come away unscathed. Notice the language Peter is using here. Uh, God in the Old Testament is sometimes referred to as a roaring lion. Uh, Isaiah 31.4 and Joel 3.16. And yet Peter is shifting the analogy here a little bit. Peter is using this language of a roaring lion in reference to the devil to demonstrate the kind of opponent that we're dealing with here. Uh, this Satan, in other words, is not the trivial pitchfork in a red leotard outfit that was used to mock the devil. Right? No one actually believed that the devil looked like that. Uh, no, this Satan, and Peter's trying to draw this imagery, comes with a terror that would almost appear to mimic the ferocity of God himself. Only this ferocity isn't used to protect the flock and guard the vulnerable. Rather, Satan used his ferocity to consume Christians. We are to be sober-minded with memories in our lives of those whom Satan has taken away from the faith. Maybe there's someone who comes to your mind as, as we read this. To those who fell into the devil's enticements and traps and walked away from the Good Shepherd. Christians are called to be humble about this reality. To not just ignore him, but what? Resist him. We finally must be humble towards the sufferings of the saints. You see, the perils and temptations of the devil, the trials that he brings to saints around the world, uh, these are things that shouldn't cause the Christian to falter. Rather, Peter, as he's, as he's done throughout this letter, reframes it, reframes the sufferings of the saints. It's something that should bring about us a sense of solidarity, of unity, of reminding ourselves that we carry the sufferings of the church universal together. We resist the devil, knowing that his antics across the world are signs that we should remain firm in the faith. Or the persecuted church in China, the long-suffering of churches providing relief and aid in Ukraine, the underground church in North Korea under the threat of death, missionaries risking their lives in Iran, the over 5,600 martyrs killed for their faith in 2022. These thoughts of them don't weaken our cause. Rather, they work against the devil's actions. They only fuel the church, Peter says, to prepare themselves soberly, humbly, for the sufferings that we may endure as the church here in America. I think of the C.S. Lewis book, uh, The Screwtape Letters, when I think about how we are to resist the devil's advances in thinking through suffering. Uh, for those of you who haven't read it, it's a fictional book written from the perspective of a head demon tempter named Screwtape. And in it, C.S. Lewis is trying to show how the tempter works to try to lead us away from Christ. So in one of the letters, Screwtape tries to tell his tempter apprentice named Wormwood that suffering, or in his case, World War II, because of what God offers to us in Jesus. And that faith becomes unbreakable even as saints suffer around the world. You see, suffering and evil are not defeaters for belief in God. Rather, they could be the strength and fuel for faith as we dwell, pray, and consider our brothers and sisters in Christ across the world and the sufferings they're going through. Drive to us a catalyst for faith to be lived out in humility and in grace. This is the call of the flock. That after we have suffered a little while, in verse 10, 
that we will receive the living hope that Peter started his letter with. That this God of all grace, the God who called us to an imperishable inheritance, he will make our sufferings into something worthwhile. He will call us out from the fog of life and we will run to him, awaiting to be fed. He will establish our steps. So for his glory, for his dominion, for his power, forever and ever, we will look to our great shepherd. We will be the humble flock. For his glory, we will endure suffering in the exile because our salvation is secure. That is the message of 1 Peter. Let us pray together.